What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive, apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of God. The words we just read are a, a very, very hotly debated passage in the book of Romans. Um, there's actually quite a, a big division uh, amongst people who read Romans 7 and think it's actually, it could only be talking about a non-Christian. And then there are other people who just as thoughtfully and just as well with, with good reasoning believe that it could only be talking about a Christian. <laughs> Um, there's, there's a variety of ways that people have understood this passage. And so we're going to come at it with humility. Now, I'm going to pray now and ask that God would help us to understand this word. Um, I do think it can be understood. And I do think it has something that's really important for us to understand. So let's pray and ask for God's help. Our gracious God, we thank you that you are the God who is all-knowing all wise, and that you do give wisdom when we ask for it. And so, Lord, we ask for wisdom this morning to understand these words. Help us see what it is that Paul is talking about. Help us know what implications these truths have for us now, living as your people. 
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the most frustrating experiences uh, of a new Christian is is realising that maybe things don't actually change quite as dramatically as they first expected. And if you became a Christian as an adult, you might remember this experience. There was probably much excitement when you first came to know the Lord Jesus, when you were baptised, when, com- when you committed yourself to him, when you knew his grace, and then the next day, or maybe the next week or the next month, you sort of started to think, well, hold on, has it made any difference now? It can be quite frustrating to know what now. This morning we're continuing our series in chapters 5 to 8 of Romans, and in this section of Paul's letter, he is answering the question, what now? Chapters 1 to 4 have been dedicated to showing how anyone can be declared right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith. But now in the next section, Paul says, well, since we have been justified by faith, what should we expect now? What should our lives look like now? Now, in chapter 6, Paul made it very clear to us that Christians should not continue to sin. We can rule that out straight away. If you are saved by grace, that doesn't mean, well, you don't need to worry about what you do. You're saved, you, you died to sin so that you can belong to God and serve him. And so we, we don't go on sinning. So surely that means, well, we must obey God's law. We must use the Old Testament law as our moral guide. The way we begin the Christian life is by grace, not by works. But the way we continue, well, that must be by following the rules, by keeping the law. Friends, there'll be many teachers that you may have even heard who will say things like this. Who will say, we we go to the gospel for justification, but we go back to the law for sanctification. Is that how we live? Should Christians strive to keep the Ten Commandments? Should we strive to live righteous lives by obeying the law? Well, in chapter 7, Paul came out very clearly and said, absolutely not. He said, you've died to sin. How could you continue in that any longer? You've also died to the law. So don't continue in that any longer either. So in the opening words of chapter 7, which we looked at last week, Paul makes his case. He says, Christians have died to the law been released from its bondage and set free to serve God in a new way. In the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Now, where we left off last week, Paul could have jumped straight into chapter 8. He could finish at chapter 7, verse 6, and then jump straight into chapter 8, where he goes on to explain what it means to serve in the new way of the spirit. But he doesn't. Instead, what he decides to do is to linger on this topic of the law. 
And in the remainder of chapter 7, which Bernie just read for us, he takes a little side detour and he wants to do two things. And I'm sorry, they're not on your handouts because they didn't print and they're not on the slides because the internet did not work this morning. So sorry, listen carefully. Two things that Paul is doing in this passage. Uh, First, he's defending himself against anyone who thinks that he's opposing God's law. He's wanting to make sure that we understand he is not opposed to God's law. He still thinks the law is good. The second thing he's doing is he wants you to know why you can't keep serving God in the old way of the letter. Why you can't keep the law. And so these are going to be our two points this morning. So we begin... Verse 7, with law, yeah, what is it good for? Because if you've been reading Romans, Paul will tell you that the law of Moses is good for showing you how sinful you are and then enticing you to sin even more, which doesn't sound very good, does it? It doesn't sound very useful. Now, in chapter 7, he then comes along and says, you don't need to keep the law of Moses, you need to die to the law of Moses. You need to be released from it in order to truly serve God. Now, you probably hear this and just kind of shrug your shoulders and go, oh, yeah, cool. Uh, Remember, Paul is writing to an audience, many of whom were Jewish. And Jews thought the law of Moses was the greatest thing since unleavened bread. They thought it was more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. These are the words of Psalm 19. How is it that Paul can say the things that he does about God's law? Is he opposed to the word of God? Well, Paul sets out to defend himself about, against this kind of thinking. And so in verse 7, he asks, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? It sounds like Paul thinks it might be. He's told us that it provokes sin, that it causes death, that it gets in the way of us belonging to Christ, that it is some way opposed to life in the spirit. He tells us that we've been released from it. And and typically you don't need to be released from good things. You've never felt the need to be released from your relaxing day at the beach or a nice dinner out, have you? You you get released from bad things. You get released from detention. You get released from prison. So, So is the law bad? Certainly not, says Paul. He says the law is not the problem. Sure, the law reveals sin. Paul says that he wouldn't have even known what coveting was had it he not heard the word of God that said, you shall not covet. But as soon as he heard the command, what happened? Do not covet your neighbor's house. Why would I not covet my neighbor's? Oh my goodness, have you seen my neighbor's house? Wow, that's enough. My house feels like a dump compared to my neighbor's house. I want that house. How dare, oh, it's not fair. Why does my neighbor get a nice house and I have to live in this dump? And on it it goes. The, The law actually opened his eyes to sin, and then he was brought to sin. If you've been the parent of a toddler, you'll know this idea. You'll be very familiar with it. Because as soon as you tell a toddler 
don't touch that, what do they want to do? They touch that. And as soon as you tell a toddler, don't go over there, they go over there. I'm sure most toddlers would never even think of sticking something in the PowerPoint, except for that one time their parents said to them, don't you ever put anything in the PowerPoint, it's dangerous. And now we have to go around and stick all those stupid little safety plugs in all the PowerPoints, because our toddler wants to. But you see, it's not just toddlers. We all do the same thing. Think about it. You see a sign that says, do not enter. And what do you immediately want to do? That sign can't tell me what to do. I'm going in. Give a man a law and immediately he will want to break it. And so what Paul actually shows us here is that the law doesn't just reveal sin. It doesn't just show us what is right and what is wrong. It, it actually provokes sin. It entices us into sin. Paul says that sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in him every kind of covetous desire. Before he heard the command, he didn't even know what coveting was. It wasn't even on his radar. He was blissfully ignorant. But then the commandment came and now he covets everything. There's this great story of Augustine of Hippo. He was a theologian in the the 4th and 5th centuries. And he tells this story from when he was a teenager of a time when he and his friends snuck out one night to steal pears. And you thought youth crime was bad enough today. Now, neither Augustine nor his friends actually needed the pears. They had plenty of food to eat at home. None of them even wanted the pears. He said, in the end, they stole the pears off this tree and then they threw them to the pigs. They didn't even want to eat them. They had better pears at home. They stole the pears for no other reason that they knew it was wrong. And, and human beings have within us this, this perverse desire to do what we know we should not do. It's why we have kids stealing cars today. It's why some married people have affairs. But it's also why the problem with the law is not the law. It is sin using the law as a weapon. Now, there's lots of good things that have been turned into weapons, aren't there? Now, take explosives, for example. Explosives are really, really useful. If you've got a field that's full of rocks and you want to plant a crop, explosives are your friend. If you've got precious minerals in the ground and you want them, explosives are very good. But put explosives in the hands of the wrong kind of person and you have a tool for maiming and killing and destroying. Artificial intelligence is really, really useful. It promises so much in transportation and research and health. But put AI in the hands of scammers or dodgy corporations or malicious governments and it's a weapon. But you see, explosives and AI are not the problem. It's the wicked people who use them to do wicked things that turn these things into weapons that are the problem. 
And so in the same way, Paul can say the law of Moses is holy and righteous and good. He's not opposed to it at all. Down in verse 22, he can even say that he delights in, that he joyfully agrees with the law. The problem is not the law, but in the hands of sin, the law is a powerful weapon. It is sin that seizes the opportunity created by the law that deceives Paul and that through the commandment put him to death. The law leads to death but only because sin used the good law as a weapon. So Paul's not opposed to the law of Moses. That's what the first thing he's trying to do, defend himself. He says the law is holy and righteous and it is good. And we should read the Old Testament law and and see its goodness. It is the word of God. It is living and active. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. It is good. But you should still never try to keep it. Because in verse 14 to 25, Paul explains a weakness of the law. Because after making clear that the law is not the problem, uh, Paul channels a bit of Taylor Swift's anti-hero and identifies the real problem. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. The, The reason... We should never try to keep the law of Moses. The reason we will never succeed at serving God in the old way of the written code is not a problem with the law. It's a problem with us. Now, to understand that the whole section from 14 to 25... We need to see that Paul's making a really important distinction between our identity and our capacity. Paul's argued very strongly in chapter 6 that Christians have a new identity. We are righteous slaves of God. We are free from sin and death. That is our identity. If you are a Christian, that is who you are. And it's this new identity that Paul talks about when he speaks of the good that he wants to do and the evil that he hates. Or when he says in verse 22 that in my inner being, I delight in God's law. These are the longings of the new Paul, his new identity in Christ. But Paul also helps us see that while we have a new identity, we also have a a physical capacity that has not yet caught up with that identity. And, And Paul calls this the flesh. This is what he's talking about in verse 14, where he says, the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Or the word that he actually has is, he is of the flesh. Or in verse 18, he says, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. He's talking about that capacity. And so, while it's perfectly true to say that we have a new identity, 
and that right now we are living a new life to God, we live this new life in old bodies. We live this new life in in fleshly bodies which have not yet been made perfect. And so this creates quite a, a, a conflict within Paul. That he, he knows what he wants to do. He serves the law of God in his mind. But, but in his flesh, he's still, as it were, a slave to sin. And so you have quite a difference between who you are, your identity, and what you are now capable of, your capacity. I don't know if this will help you, but I'll, I'll try. Uh, as a kid, I used to play the, the soccer video game FIFA. I had FIFA 99. Uh, and in FIFA, you could create your own player. So, of course, I made myself. I created this new player. I named him Phil Stolk. I changed his appearance to look as much like me as you could with pre-2000s video game graphics. And then I set the attributes to match, you know, me. 100% for speed, 100% for power, 100% for control, 100% for accuracy, 100% for fitness. And then I put Phil Stolk in the Manchester United team and, you know, won the premiership. The problem was, is that uh, what would happen? I would go out on weekends and then I would play in real life soccer with my real team and I would feel the painful experience of not living up to my video game identity. I could not do what Phil Stolk in FIFA 99 could do. I had dreams of, you know, beating every player in the opposition and shooting spectacular goals from outside the penalty box, uh, but my fleshly capacity could not live up to my virtual identity. It's a bit like that for Christians, except for that our identity is not some fantasy world. Our identity is real. In fact, our, our new identity in Christ is our, is our true self. This is who you really are. Paul says that it is I myself who longs to do what is good. But Paul still lives in a fleshly body. And, and like a virus, sin has entered into that body. It is living in me, Paul says in verse 17. And this sin that lives within our fleshly bodies, it prevents us from functioning according to our original design, which was to carry out God's good law. And this is true of every person, because every, every human is a, a fleshly human. Since Adam, sin has dwelt in the bodies of humans. And, and so now... Every human is, in a sense, incapacitated, morally disabled. The goodness of God's holy law is beyond our reach. And so while we have a new identity, our sin-limited fleshly capacity makes it impossible for us to serve God in the old way of the law. 
And so Paul's point here is that because you're still living in this fleshly body, because you are still waiting for the day when you get a resurrection body that will match your new identity, right now, even with that new identity, you cannot expect to be able to obey God's law. Now, now, what is the hope? What needs to change? Paul tells us in verse 24. He cries out, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Now, some people read that and think it's like a cry for forgiveness, a, a cry for salvation. It's not. It's the cry of someone who is already forgiven, but is longing for deliverance from their fleshly body. It's like it could be the cry of the Christian longing for resurrection, longing for the day when we will rise again and be like Jesus, longing for the day when sin no longer reigns in our bodies. And that's why immediately after, in verse 25, Paul answers his own question. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's seen that Jesus is already at work to bring him to that destination. He knows that deliverance from that fleshly body is coming. Now, if I've lost you, here's the point. If you think that the way to live the Christian life now is to be justified by grace, but then to continue by keeping the law, if you think that you need to keep the law now as a Christian, you are setting yourself up for a life of frustration and bitterness and disappointment. The law leads only to death. Because you can't keep the law. You're still living in this flesh. What you need, what I need, what we all need, and then exactly what God has offered us is his spirit. If we are to keep, if we are to serve God, we cannot do it in the old way of the letter. We need the new way. We need a power that comes from outside of us. We need God's spirit. Friends, today we learn that we cannot keep the law because of our flesh. Uh, Come back next week, because then you'll hear how you can fulfill the law by the Spirit in the new way. But to finish, I want to leave you with three implications from what we've learned today. Most of you will have looked at this passage and thought, I really never tried to obey the Old Testament law, so I don't really know what this has to say to me. Uh, I'm going to give you three things. First, I want you to know your limits. Now, this is not the whole story. Paul is about to show us in chapter 8, show us the power that we do have over sin by the Spirit. That's coming. Come back next week. But for now, he wants us to come to terms with our inability. 
with our powerlessness. He wants us to see that the way to living the good, God-pleasing life is not through obeying the commandments because our flesh is entirely incapable of keeping them. And so for you, I want you to go out this morning knowing your limitation. Don't go out thinking that once you've become a Christian, you'll be able to overcome sin yourself. It will crush you. Please don't do that. Don't go on thinking that you can conquer sin in your own power. You can't. And so either you will fail and then just lead to despair or you will convince yourself that you're succeeding and it will make you horribly arrogant. Know your limits. The second implication flows out of the first, uh, which is where do you look to for help? You need to look outside yourself for help. Knowing our limits, knowing that good itself does not dwell in us should drive us to see that we need a power that comes from outside of us that enables us to serve God. And friends, that's what faith is. Uh, Faith is the acknowledgement that I can't do this myself. I need God to do it for me. It's a crying out for help. And so what I want you to see today is that you don't just need faith to get in the door. (laughs) You don't need faith to be justified and then you can kind of just continue on in your own merry way. No, you need to keep looking outside yourself every day of your Christian life. Keep remembering that it is only through the power of God that you can serve God, that you can live out your new holy identity. We'll come back to that a little bit more next week. Know your limits. Cry out to Jesus for help. But finally, in this knowledge of your own limited capacity, I want you to let that inform how you view other people. One of the ugliest things you'll ever see in, within a church is when you have those who think that they are keeping the law themselves, who kind of treat the law in the same way the Pharisees did. And they elevate themselves above others and look down on everyone. But do you see how this kind of, it changes our perspective of ourselves? It makes us see that there's nothing in us that could make us right with God and that there's nothing in us that having been made right with God, we could could continue to serve him. We just cannot do any of it ourselves. And so there's no room for pride or for boasting. If if you try to use the law this way, you'll, you'll start to measure your overall Uh, progress you'll start to look down on those who maybe haven't made it as far as you you'll start to gossip about those who do things that you don't do but friends when you see that you are limited in your fleshly capacity that you have a new identity that comes from outside of you and that the only way you can serve god is with the power of the spirit that comes from outside of you 
You don't look at yourself with any sense of pride or boasting, do you? It sets you free to love. And so, friends, my encouragement for you this morning is to recognize this about yourself and then look around and notice that you are no different to anyone else here. You are just as much in need of God for justification as you are in need to continue serving him all the days of your life. And that sets you free to love your brothers and sisters. How about I pray? I'm sure there'll be some questions. We'll see if I can answer them. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that we are justified by faith in Christ alone. That Jesus did everything that was necessary for us to be counted right with you. But we thank you also that you have done everything that is necessary for us to continue to serve you in our lives as your people. Lord, kill the thought that lingers within our minds that makes us think that we can do that ourselves. Stop us from thinking that we can please you through the old way of the law. Lord, help us see that we need a power that comes from outside, that we need your spirit to be able to serve you in a new way. Lord, help us to come to terms with this view of ourselves. It's a humbling view of ourselves. But Lord, we pray that this humility would enable us to look on other people with love, not with judgment, not with condemnation, not with arrogance, but with love. And so, Lord, we pray that you would produce this kind of love in us by your Spirit. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.